0: Welcome back to The Book Club. I'm Michael Knowles, and today I will be leading you, you blessed best of men, out of your pit of ignorance into the light of truth, philosophy, and reality. I will be doing a little bit of that. Mostly the person who will be doing that is my guest, Solveig Gold. Hello. A a recent... PhD now from Cambridge, undergraduate at Princeton. And despite your time in these very elite universities, nevertheless, you are also very educated and bright.
1: Uh, Thank you. I I try my best. We'll (laughs) let the the audience judge that for themselves.
0: So what is The Republic? And, And more specifically, what is book seven? Because there's so much here, we are only going to be covering book seven, which is the famous allegory of the cave.
1: Exactly. What is the Republic about? It is at its core about coming up with a definition for justice. And, you know, this is a book by Plato, um, philosopher of the end of the fifth, early fourth century um, B.C. in Athens. And like most platonic dialogues, it's about his beloved mentor, Socrates, um, who uh, was a philosopher of the fifth century B.C. Athens. And uh, Socrates was always trying to come up with definitions for things. And in this case, we're looking for a definition for justice. Um, And Socrates, as always, turns to the people of Athens and tries to get them to help him come up with definitions. And he examines each one and determines that each one that is provided to him is not satisfactory. But in the Republic, we actually do eventually get a definition of justice. And we get to it um, because Socrates decides that instead of focusing on the just person, we should focus on the just city. And so he has us imagine what a just city would look like. This just city in question is gonna be called Callipolis and it's gonna consist of three classes of citizens. We're gonna have the producing class, of wage earners and uh, craftsmen. We're going to have the guardian class, which is the military class. And then we're going to have a very small handful of citizens who are the philosophers. And Socrates determines that in the just city, um, the philosopher should be ruling over the rest of the city. And he then looks at that just city and says, well, we can map that onto um, what the just person would look like. And so similarly, each of us has a soul that consists of three parts. We have the rational part of our soul, the appetitive part of our soul, and the honor-loving part of our soul. Um, and in the soul as in the city, just as the philosopher rules, so should the, uh, the rational part rule um, our souls. And so then the question becomes, well, why should philosophers rule? Why, why would we want that? Um, and why would we want that? Well, that's why we get the allegory of the cave.
0: The notion that philosophers should rule, I suspect, is repugnant to many people, hmm. but especially to conservatives, I bet. It's it's repugnant because when we think of philosophers today, we think of some punk kid who probably hasn't showered, who might be wearing a Che Guevara t-shirt, who <laughs> is some big lib, and we think, well, that, that, that flunky should be the last person to rule.
1: Yeah, those probably aren't philosophers right <laughs> there.
0: Well, and it's a point that Socrates makes in Book 7. He says... Yeah. At any rate, the current mistaken philosophy, as a result of which, as we also said before, dishonor has befallen philosophy, is that men who aren't worthy take it up. And and so he says, well, who are the people who should take it up? The man who is to take it up must not be lame in his love of labor, mm-hmm. loving only half of labor, but not the other half. And he says, if someone loves to study all the time, but doesn't like to go to the gym and work out, well, that guy, he, he's not good for it. And 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 the opposite thing is true, you know. Someone who just likes to go to the gym and doesn't want to read any books. Got to be
1: well-rounded. You
0: got to be well-rounded. Yes. And it, it's interesting because when I think of philosophers, I, I generally don't think of big Chad gym bros. You're hanging with the
1: wrong philosophers. I'm clearly
0: hanging with the wrong philosophers yeah. because what what Socrates is saying here is that soy boys have no place doing real philosophy.
1: That's right. Well, and many of Socrates' dialogues or Plato's dialogues about Socrates are are actually set in in gymnasiums with right. the, with people standing around doing the kinds of things greek men did they you know they were they were training the body yeah you know you you training the mind is not enough you have to train the body but training the body is just the beginning yeah um everybody can train the body everybody should be training the body in this city only a few people are going to train the body sufficiently then to move on to training the mind
0: most people i think have some idea of what the allegory of the cave is even if they haven't read it most people i think have heard of this idea no yeah. What is it?
1: The cave. Plato gives us this image. He gives us lots of images in his uh, in his corpus, but this one really sticks with people. The idea is that we have a cave. Um, and in the cave, there are people who have been fettered into position their entire lives, and all they can do is stare straight ahead at a wall. Um, and behind them, there is another wall, and behind that wall is... Uh, great fire and there are some people who stand between the fire and the wall and they process back and forth with puppets and for those people who are sitting there chained looking straight ahead all they can see on the cave wall in front of them are the puppets they can see the shadows of the puppets right shadows. not even the puppets not even themselves, the puppets they're, the seeing, shadows, they're yeah. seeing the shadows of the puppets and that for them is their entire reality um, and they spend their days playing guessing games about those puppets. They're about the shadows of the puppets. They are um, guessing which puppets gonna come next or what the puppets are going to do. And these are contests. They win prizes as they play these games. Plato tells us that we are like those people. Right.
0: Well, it's, it's actually telling when you just, while giving this description, Accidentally said they're seeing the puppets. When in fact, what they're seeing is the shadows of the puppets. Exactly. Because the the whole point that Plato is making is that we, in our ignorance, um, in this cave that we're all living in, Mm -hmm. we constantly mistake the shadows for the real thing.
1: Exactly. So Plato has this complicated theory of, of being. The idea is that what we see in our sensible world around us is merely a pale imitation of the true reality. And that true reality, and again, this may be a term those in the audience have already heard, that true reality is the world of forms. And those are the ideas of things. The idea of justice, let's say, that's a form. Um, The form of beauty, and most importantly, the form of the good. And that's the one we get really into in uh, book seven of The Republic. The form of the good is the form um, that makes everything in our world good. But we have no idea that that's there. All we see is our sensible world. And then most of us actually don't even spend our time thinking about the sensible world. We think about the imitation of the sensible world. And what is an imitation of the sensible world? Well, that would be poetry. This is why he wants to ban poetry. Um, that would probably be a video format like the one we're doing right, right. now. You know, this this kind of format would probably not be <laughs> acceptable to Plato um, because it is merely an imitation of an imitation. And
0: of, which, of an ultimate reality.
1: Exactly. Of the ultimate reality. So Plato says, well, most people are just stuck in the cave. They don't even know that they're stuck in the cave. They don't even know who they themselves are because all they see are these shadows on the wall they they don't they can't look to their left or their right they can't see that there are other people like them when they hear voices they think it's the shadows making those sounds right when in um, fact
0: it's echoes bouncing off the walls of the cave
1: exactly so that's our image of the cave and and he says but what would happen if someone got free what if you could break free of your fetter and turn around and Realize what's going on in the cave. Walk
0: out of the cave into the light. Well, first
1: you have to just even realize that you're. But you're in the cave, right? Um, And this process of turning around seems to be the process of education, right? Of coming to realize that what you're focused on in your world is this imitation, and that you know, coming to realize even who who you are—that you are not just a shadow on a wall. And so, first you'd have to get free. Someone. Plato says you probably wouldn't be able to do this on your own. Someone would have to unbind you and would have to turn you around because you wouldn't even know that you could turn around, right? So this is the job of the teacher, to turn the person around, get them, push them out of the cave. And then all of a sudden you realize, okay, what I've been looking at is a shadow of a puppet. And then the the shadows are lightened by this fire. But oh my goodness, outside of the cave there's real light. There's not just a fire. Outside of the cave is a whole other world with sunshine and um, plants and, you know, the real thing. But as Socrates says, you know, you, you can't even look straight into the real world. If you exit that cave, right. it's going to be really painful. Your eyes, you've spent your whole life acclimated to the dark. Um, what happens when you try to exit the cave? It's going to be awful.
0: Um, it's going to be awful. At first.
1: At first. But,
0: but eventually, just like when you leave a really dark, you leave a movie theater, you come out yes. to the town during <laughs> the day. Yes, it's a good example. Right? You, you, yeah. Be, so, yeah, I suppose yeah. that is accidentally. That's exactly that is, the example. Right? Yeah. You walk out of the town, your eyes really hurt at first, but then eventually your eyes settle in and you can see that world around you. Right. Then and what happens when go- you see
1: that world? You think it is the most beautiful thing you've ever seen.
0: But then if you were to go back in to the movie theater or you were to go back into the cave. Right, well, so
1: you're not going to want to go back into the movie theater is what Socrates tells us. You're really happy in that outside world. It's the most beautiful place you've ever seen. Why would you want to go back into that horrible dark cave where everybody is just chained looking at a wall? Um, Well,
0: wouldn't you want to go free your friends?
1: Well, you might, but you also recognize that maybe they're not all capable of being free. And also... That assumes a lack of self-interest, right, mm. that, that we can't expect always from, from everyone, not even from philosophers, mm. right? Philosophers, once they get out of that cave, why would they want to spend their time with other humans when they are with the divine form of the good itself? Right. Right. Plato says, Socrates says, um, we're going to have to force people to go back into the cave. We can't let people just stay out of the cave forever. Once they have been out of the cave they need to go back into the cave. Why? um, Because they alone have knowledge of the good and they alone will be capable of making the people inside the cave, if not aware of the good themselves, at least attuned to things other than just shadows. Now, it's not totally clear what happens when the philosopher goes back into the cave. What we are told is that anyone who goes back into the cave is gonna have a really hard time. First of all, you go back into the cave, it's gonna be painful for you. Your eyes have to readjust to the darkness.
0: Because Plato says, there are two ways that you can disturb your eyes, Mm -hmm. when you go from darkness to light, but also when you go from light Light to to dark. dark."
1: Exactly. And then there's a further problem. Um, The further problem is that you're gonna seem really weird (laughs) when you go back and you have suddenly been enlightened and you you know all of this stuff and you want to scream it to the rooftops right but nobody in the cave wants to hear this they don't want to know about all that world they think you're crazy right they'll mock you yeah and you know not only will they necessarily think you're crazy they'll think you're you know impious they think you are you're bringing he- what you're saying is heresy right that there are more important things than these shadows on the wall what are you talking about
0: it's very funny today yeah. and in all days and age. When, when people say, I've seen something of the truth. I know something that's true that most people do not understand. And so I want to tell it to the people, but the people are attacking me for that. I say, oh, you're, you don't say. <laughs> you know, so now remind me, what did they do to um, Socrates, uh, yeah. Jesus, yeah. Uh, I don't know, everyone who's ever told the truth in all of history.
1: Exactly. So yeah. Plato
0: sees that happening and he's saying, this is just, this is the state of mankind. You, when, when a philosopher comes down and gives you a glimpse of the real truth, mm-hmm. that person will be mocked.
1: You'll be mocked and worse, what might happen to you? You <coughs> might be put to death. Right. Exactly. Especially because the philosopher no longer knows how to play along, right? So if you've read Plato's Apology, that's when Socrates is on trial and it's the story of Socrates' trial before the people of Athens when he's brought, um, uh, brought to trial for, for uh, committing an impiety and corrupting the youth. And Socrates says that he has, you know no idea how to present himself in a law court. Now, that could be Socratic irony. Some people say, of course, Socratic irony, but it's also true that Socrates is not interested in playing along the way people used to used to uh, do things in the, in the in the law courts. you know, people people would, appeal to emotion and they would bring in their children and say, oh, you can't put me to death. Look at my children. Socrates is not interested in that kind of thing. Socrates is interested only in the truth.
0: And to to use the other example that I mentioned, Socrates and Jesus, when Jesus is on trial, he doesn't make a rousing defense of himself or beg for mercy. He he says nothing.
1: Exactly. And and then
0: finally, when when, uh, he's asked, well, why did you do this? Are you this? Did you say that? He says, you say so.
1: Yeah, exactly. You say so. Exactly right. So, you know, and this is why people will say Socrates prefigures Jesus, yeah. of course. Yeah. Yeah. So, so when, when the philosopher returns to the cave and there's a very, you know, it's a quite obvious reference to socrates own trial and you get these in almost every if not every platonic dialogue there's some kind of reference to the trial and death of socrates but this is a particularly obvious one the philosopher returns and he doesn't know how to operate in the world of the shadows anymore he can't play along with those games he's not gonna win any prizes um if they ask him to to you know pick out which shadow is gonna do what he can't do that anymore um and so as socrates says what'll happen The philosopher will probably be put to death. Okay, so there's nothing in it for the philosopher to return to the cave, right? (laughs) And yet, we began this section by saying, um, you know, we're trying to understand why we want philosophers to rule. And part of the reason we want philosophers to rule is precisely that they don't want to go back into the
0: cave. Yes. Yes. Right. Right. And
1: this is um, one of Socrates' great insights in the Republic is that um, the the people who want to rule are precisely the people you don't want ruling, right? right? You want someone like a Socrates, a disinterested um, philosopher type who would rather be doing anything else (laughs) other than ruling the city. You have to force him to go back.
0: Socrates says it is always the case Mm -hmm. that the people who least want to govern are the ones who will be the best governors, and he says, "When government devolves into wars and factions and fighting for power, that's when your city is sunk."
1: Exactly, and that's that's what comes after the allegory of the cave. Book eight of the Republic is tracing what happens in most cities where you do have all of those people vying for for power, and you can see, you know, what what happens um, in a normal city, and uh, there's a. There's quite a uh, vigorous attack on Athenian democracy in Book Eight, and you can see that this is motivated in large part um, by Plato's an- own animosity towards Athens as a result of Socrates. And this is
0: a pretty urgent question for us because yeah. we live in what is commonly called modern liberal democracy, yes. and and what
1: or a republic
0: or a republic <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> yes. So. Yes after we leave this image of the cave. Yeah. Socrates then goes on to apply this to how this this is going to work in government, right? Yeah. We're going to have we need these philosophers to rule, so we're going to take these bright little boys, mm-hmm. these bright young men, and women, crucially. And women, yeah. And we're going to take them aside and we're going to educate them in this very special way. Well,
1: we're going to educate every – well, this, right. this is a contested point about the republic. Everything in the Republic is contested, and I'm sure I've said all <laughs> sorts of things that various scholars would also disagree with, even just in the course of these few minutes talking about it. But, um, yes, the the, the I, I stand with those who view that um, everybody in the Republic will be educated yeah. up to a point. So the education system in Kallipolis is quite interesting. Everyone's trained in gymnastics, um, but there are these constant tests. Um, and if you fail the test, then you're kicked out of the running. You're no longer, you no longer have a shot at being a guardian, let alone a philosopher. Yeah. And this education goes on and on for years. And, you know, eventually you can select who the guardian class is going to be um, uh, through these education, that these, these tests. Um, and then, out of those guardians, a very small handful will will continue to be trained in philosophy and more specifically in something known as dialectic. Yeah, and that is um, that's how you're going to get this very small. So
0: Socrates says, uh, among all these things that you're going to study, you're going to study geometry. He spends a lot of yeah. time talking about, he talks about numbers. Mm-hmm. he He talks about astronomy in a way that I think is really interesting and and relevant to today because he says, you know, when when people study astronomy, they think they're lifting their heads up to heaven. Yeah. But depending on how they view astronomy, in many ways, it might be lowering their heads right down to the ground if people mistake the majestical studded sky for the real heavens. Yeah. And I find it so relevant for today because all these edgy online atheist bros <laughs> who think that they've totally debunked theism with facts and logic yeah. or something, they, they say, well, you're you're irrational for believing in God because you think there's a magical sky daddy. And Plato's Socrates mocks that argument in Book Seven of the Republic. He says, you dummies, I get that the heavens are really beautiful and inspire awe, but if you mistake that for what they really are, for exactly. the real truth that is behind this physical matter, yeah. then, then you're as ignorant as could be.
1: Exactly. That's why the allegory of the cave is just that, an allegory. You know, you're not supposed to think that exiting the cave and seeing the heavens is equivalent to, to understanding the form of the good. No, it's 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 an allegory for what it might be like to understand the form of the good. But what we're talking about with the form of the good is... Um, the intelligible world, you know, something that you can't possibly see through your eyes. Right. Um, and there's, there's a real battle throughout platonic dialogues about the extent to which uh, our senses help or hurt our, our process of coming to know the good. Um, you know, in some ways, I know you've, you've discussed the symposium in the book club before, Um the symposium's a good example of how you can use your senses to come to have some understanding of of beauty and goodness. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are other dialogues, like the Phaedo, where Socrates seems to suggest that, you know, our bodies are entirely an impediment to um, goodness, and that, as he says, the philosopher's job is to to learn how to die, essentially, mm-hmm. because only by um, Getting as close to death as you can. Um, will you have any uh, you know, ability to separate yourself from your body and just focus in on, on the intelligible? So it's very important not to get bogged down by anything sensible, including the heavens.
0: Right, and and this is a tension that you see certainly then when Aristotle comes around and, yeah. and comes out with his works. And you see this in the early Christian writers. Some who say, like Tertullian, that the flesh is so important that salvation hinges on the flesh. Yes. Some, especially... Uh, heretics who claim that the body is, the matter is all evil. I'm thinking of the Albigensians exactly. and all sorts of other people. But but yes. all of that to say, this is a tension that runs through all of Western philosophy. Of course. There is what we see, at this tension yeah. between the truth and the political order as it is put into practice. Yes. In, in a simple way, we're just acknowledging this is a fallen world and and this perfect regime is is utopian. Right. Meaning doesn't exist.
1: It doesn't exist. And, you know, who's the philosopher who's going to bring it about? Well, the only person Plato seems to have in mind is already dead, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> so he's creating this system for Socrates and yet we don't have another Socrates.
0: Which is why, of course, you, you can't say that it's a, he's just kidding or it's just a joke or this is fake news or something yeah. like that because what Plato is describing is obviously true. And uh, it, this is attested to by the very death of Socrates, by the way that philosophers have been persecuted throughout all of history, yeah. uh, by the way that philosophers sometimes even have to write in a way that, that uh, doesn't totally tip the hand of what they're actually saying.
1: That's, that's exactly right.
0: If I came out tomorrow yes. and I, I were running for president tomorrow, and I said, listen, folks, I'm running on the platform of democracy is terrible. Most of you deluded lunatics are completely incapable of freedom, and we are going to install the Philosopher Kings to run the country. Here we go. Sign up for the campaign. <laughs> I would be run out of town. I probably would be killed. And maybe that just proves the man right.
1: I think it does. You know, Plato, it is it is said that Plato himself had political aspirations. Hmm. Um, It's also said that he had theatrical aspirations.
0: Those two often Um, go hand in hand.
1: I know, don't they? Isn't that funny? But uh, yeah, you know, and and in The Republic, he ends up getting to live out his political aspirations in his imagination. And then he does away with the theater altogether. So,
0: (laughs) you know. (laughs) smarter and smarter the more I learn about this guy
1: (laughs) oh I wouldn't go that far because again this is where you then start to say well does he really mean it because of course the whole thing is written as a dialogue right Right. so okay yes he wants to ban poetry and anything that is mimetic meaning anything that is imitative um, like the theater Um, but okay so is the dialogue format. So, you know, while I, I said that maybe Plato wouldn't approve of this video format, maybe actually he
0: maybe he would he so,
1: be okay with it.
0: So we find ourselves exactly where we were at the end talking about book one of the Republic with, mm. with Socrates, which is we shrug our shoulders. We just don't well, quite Well,
1: I hope we're not shrugging our <laughs> shoulders. I hope we just keep reading the, the book. Hmm. And that's, you know, that's the brilliance of Plato is all these years later. We can still sit here, still talk about it, still argue about it. Um,
0: and try to dispel some of those shadows on the cave wall that we're fettered to look at. We
1: do our best be mixing and shadow public on the water. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: Solveig, on that highly intellectual note, wonderful to have you. Where can people find you?
1: Well, um, I am currently a postdoc at Princeton University. I like to publish things both for the academy and for the public, um, returning to the cave when I can. And... Um, And, uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter, which is in some ways, I suppose, the ultimate cave. Yeah, truly.
0: And there's no hope of ever turning one's head around to see the true light when you're
1: on Twitter. No, no matter how many characters you use, you're Mm -hmm. just just looking at shadows on a blue screen. Um, Yeah, my Twitter handle is Solveigold.
0: (laughs) Solveig. Thank you so much for being here. I'm Michael Knowles. This is The Book Club. Happy reading until next time. And please don't kill us. Thank you so much for watching this episode of The Book Club on PragerU. PragerU is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so we rely on donations from viewers like you to keep this content on the air. Please consider making a tax-deductible contribution today
1: to help keep this content coming. Thank you very much.